You will turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, continue our study in this book. 1 Samuel 17, very familiar passage, perhaps one of the most familiar in Scripture. So as we come to it, we pray that the Lord would give us eyes of understanding and even fresh eyes as we look upon this text. And so let's go to him now in prayer and ask for his help with that. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would guide us, um, particularly with this passage where it has been interpreted many ways, many times, that you would lead us to the truth of it, and the truth lies in the fact that you are here on every page, you are proclaimed, you're exalted, and we are to worship you because of what we learn here. And so, Lord, convict us of our sin in light of that, the sin that would see ourselves in these pages, that would um, make ourselves the hero or even your enemy. And so convict us of our sin, lead us to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so, after reading this text, I think, a lot of people have the same thought I did on this one. Uh, this one wasn't a real stretch like a lot of my thoughts are. For this one, it was the movie Hoosiers that came to mind. You guys are probably familiar with the movie Hoosiers, probably one of my top ten, maybe even top five movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, you should go do that immediately after church. Do not pass go. Go straight to Hoosiers. I probably watch it like three or four times a year. You know, it's got Gene Hackman, Dennis Hopper. It's a great movie. It's about basketball, high school basketball in Indiana. This underdog team, and I won't tell you the whole story uh, because it's good. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Um, but why do we like it? Why do I like it? Well, we all like the story of the little guy winning things, right? The underdog, little old Hickory, Indiana, Hickory High School, and, and their uh, trek throughout the state of Indiana. Again, I don't want to give you the movie away, but there is a scene in which a pastor, where a pastor reads to the team from Scripture. Uh, that doesn't happen too often anymore, but in this movie it did. And he read from our text in 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, bringing out the idea that Hickory High was the underdog, was David and David, just like David beat Goliath, they would beat their opponent on that evening. In fact, this passage has been read at many basketball games over the years, and football games, and graduations. And anytime we come up against some giant, quote-unquote giant, and we want to make it Goliath and ourselves David, and we have to overcome it with our own courage. Why? Because we like to be the hero. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be the dude who slay a giant with one little rock. There's nothing wrong with that. But we all have problems, don't we, that need to be overcome. Some small, some little, or some big. Sometimes it takes just a little bit of courage, a little bit of inspiration, and we can get through that. And if if nothing else, if it's nothing else, the story of David and Goliath is very 
inspirational, if it's nothing else. So much so that the words David and Goliath are synonymous in our culture, even in the secular culture, of overcoming some sort of major obstacle in any sort of endeavor in life. If it's nothing else, that's okay. But it is something else. It's the story of redemption that started in Genesis 3, when God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. David crushing Goliath is just a picture of Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, delivering his people from sin and death. Sorry to spoil the ending of this passage, but I think we see, we need to see this passage from the end in view, or with the end in view. I think it helps us, because when we forget, we get to be the hero rather than the scaredy cats in the story. So as we look at this passage, I want to consider three ideas, again, through the three main characters in this passage. Goliath, the one who defies God. Israel, the ones who are afraid, and David, the one who conquers. And so with that, let's read the text together. 1 Samuel chapter 17, let's stand together as we read from God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathering at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. A shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me, if he is able to fight with me and kill me. Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. The names of the three sons that went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed the father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 
And Jesse said to David's son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the, of the thousand. If your brothers are well, and bring, see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, behold, the, or as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. The king will enrich the man who kills him and with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab the oldest heard, when he had spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, and you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered again as before. When the words of David that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, he took a lamb from the flock, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and struck him, and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and struck him, and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And David said to, or Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, but he had not te for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his, with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. 
And Philistine, the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the, feast, and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, all that, that, that all the earth may know that, that there is a God in Israel, and that his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came, it came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. When David ran and stood over the Philistine, he took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sheraim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David, Go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is, is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose boy, whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So for a quick review, David was anointed the new king of Israel. Remember in chapter 16, Saul was given an evil spirit from the Lord. So we have this really strong juxtaposition going on in chapter 16. But then in order for Saul to be soothed, you know, to be eased from the torment of this evil spirit, David was brought in to play the harp for him. So the, fu the future true king of Israel soothes the current false king with his sweet harp music. All the while, the Philistines gather force to fight again, and Israel goes out to meet them. And that's where we come to in this text. There's this constant coming up against one another, and here we have that again. I think this passage to be, just a, just a note on the whole passage, to be one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to preach on. Why is that? Well, because of what we said earlier about it, I think everyone kind of brings our own ideas to the text, and it's hard not to because it's just part of our normal 
vernacular nowadays. David and Goliath. We use it almost every weekend during football season and during baseball season. We talk about David versus Goliath, and there's this. It's used in sports almost every week. Someone says it. And it's okay. No one really punishes them for using the cliche. It's become such a part of our society. And even in the church, we've seen the flannel graphs of David versus Goliath since we were like two, right? And we all have these images of little David with his little belt and coat and little headband and sling and Goliath, you know, like this monster dude who's got the big sword and everything. And anytime our culture has been allowed to interpret this story, those interpretations, sadly, begin to seep their way into the pulpits of the churches of Christ. And it may be the best example of that in Scripture, of where that happens so pervasively. And so, like we always do, let me encourage you more, even, even more strongly with this passage that we have to look at this passage from, again, from a redemptive historical kind of perspective. And what that means is the Bible is a story about redemption. It is the story of God's redemption of his people. Yes, it is historical. It is fact. There was a David. There was a Goliath. He killed him with one stone, and then he cut his head off. That happened. But the history that we read is about God's redemptive plan. God didn't somehow cobble together a plan from what was currently going on. God wasn't a bystander at that fight thinking, okay, if David wins, I'll go ahead and make him king, but if Goliath kills him, then I'll find another one. There wasn't any sort of waiting on God's part. The things that happened were taking place because God had a plan. So in that case, David was never the underdog. And he, the only person in the story, knew that. And so with that, we'll look first at Goliath, the one who defies God. I think it's important to note his dimensions. I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but it is pretty fascinating that um, as these armies line up together, the Philistines and the Hebrew situated kind of on either side of this valley, um, posturing with one another twice a day, every day, for weeks, this giant man comes out of the Philistine army and taunts the Hebrew people and their army. And he really is a giant. He's nine feet tall, over nine feet tall. His coat of armor weighs like 126 pounds. Um, that's a lot of weight to carry around on you. His, the spearhead that he's carrying is like 15 pounds. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold out 15 pounds like this, much less at the end of a giant stick. But it would get heavy, unless, of course, you're Goliath, and it would be handled much like a toothpick. He was a big dude, really big, bigger than anyone we've ever seen. Like I saw a video of this really tall high school kid who's like seven foot seven who's training for basketball. Of course he is. He's like Romanian, but he's, I feel like you could like blow him over. He's so small. Goliath was a monster of a dude. When he came out into the front of the armies, 
we understand why they were afraid, I think, or we should. And again, he's bigger than anyone we've ever seen. We take the Bible's word for this, of course. Apparently, he came from a family of giants. You can read about his family in, in, in Scripture. There was a lot of them. They were all big. David ended up, and David's people ended up striking all of them down. But he was so confident in his abilities as a soldier, this Goliath was, this killing machine, that he was willing to wage the entire conflict on that. And it was very effective, was it not? Everyone was completely afraid of him. They scattered. Even Saul the king, it says, was afraid and dismayed at him. And so, take note of his attitude in the midst of that. He is in direct defiance and is willfully mocking the Lord of glory. What does he say? I defy, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel today. I defy the armies of the God of Israel. What did he do to David? The Lord's anointed. He mocked him and he cursed him by his own gods. Note that what does David equate this defiance with? He, de he equates it with a defiance of God's people is a direct defiance of the God of those people. Goliath has no use for the Israelites or their God. He just wants to destroy them. He's been bred and trained for this sort of thing. It's in his blood. It's in his nature. It's who he is. He doesn't care about any of it. And so, as I looked at Goliath, it's a real picture, I think, of the world's defiance. Yesterday, I got into a discussion with, a, with an unbeliever, probably an atheist, though he wouldn't call himself that. I don't know how he calls himself anything after I've talked to him several times, but that's beside the point. He questioned the atonement, the logic of God. I, I posted a video of a pastor preaching on the atonement. And uh, he said, that's not logical, what he said. And I asked him, I said, well, how do you think, or how do you know what logic is? How do you even have an idea of what that is and why it's right? And his answer was, logic is subjective. Or basically, well, logic is what I think it is. If I believe it's logical, then it's logical, and therefore it's true. That's astounding, right? What he basically said is that he got to decide what the laws of logic were, whether or not anyone else was following them. And so at that point, I could have just said anything. You know, and once he gave up logic, he, he had, there was no more discussion. He was, it was wasted. It was, you know, he basically said, I'm God, what are you going to say against me? Where does that come from? Let's not forget that it's a wicked heart. We learned about, we talked about that last week. With, with the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? The heart that is dead and sin cannot and will not seek after God. In fact, it can only attack God and be convinced at the same time that it's going to win. Should this surprise us? It shouldn't. It's the same place that every person either is or 
was concerning their relationship with God. All of us, if we are believers, were there. Anyone who's an unbeliever is there. Goliath is an unbeliever. He lashes out at God. He exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Somehow believes that he is in control of the situation. It's the same for unbelievers today. It's the same for even all of us at the times that we wrestle with this sin nature in our own lives. We still struggle with this unbelief. Even in all of Goliath's strength and size, his battle against the Lord and his plans were absolutely what? Futile. And he'll be felled by a single rock to the face just a few days later. And the same can be said about anything that we construct in the name of our own righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. The believer doesn't know any better, or the unbeliever doesn't know any better. But for the believer, this is still very much a temptation for us. Jesus died to destroy the problems and the curse of sin and death and give us his own righteousness. There is no need for us to now create for ourselves some sort of new standard to stand upon. And when we do this, anytime we create a standard that Scripture doesn't, we do this anytime we create a standard that Scripture doesn't, and then we require that of other people, for sure. I think that's probably more common. We require that of other people, just like my friend required his subjective logic on me and the creator of all things. If we're not careful, we quickly become the thing that Jesus died to destroy. We become his enemy. And so we must be careful even as we battle against the sin nature in our own lives. And so next, let's look at Israel, the ones who are afraid. Their fear is very, very apparent from the beginning. It's almost a little bit comical if it wouldn't have been exactly like us. Um, and this isn't unlike Israel. Israel, at this point in the story, is easily afraid. They run and hide all the time from lots of different things. I mean, and we read these stories and we're like, whoa, they're always afraid of everything. I can't say that I blame them too much. I've never really fought in a battle or or some sort of um, conflict where my life was being threatened by someone else. So I can't stand in some kind of circle of courage and condemn them for running and being afraid. I probably would have too if a nine-foot giant came out with a spear as big as my head and tried to threaten me with it. Um, I'd probably run as well if, you know, we, we get this. I understand. If he would have, if this giant would have came out to me and said, you should be afraid of me, I would say, you're right, I am. And I would have ran away. Is their fear irrational? Not really, if we're honest with ourselves, right? But what's wrong with it? Well, turn back with me to 1 Samuel 7 quickly. It's funny how we want to insert ourselves all of this courage as if we would have gone up against Goliath too. We wouldn't have. We would have ran. I would have went like home and ate some food and watched TV or something to comfort myself. First Samuel 
chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Why is it wrong, though, for Israel to be afraid? Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord, remember Samuel's calling the people back to the Lord. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So what did the people do? So the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. What's the implication here? That the Lord was going to deliver them from the Philistines. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the Lord? Who is the only Israelite that believed the promises of God? The little shepherd boy. Now we have this same sort of fear, right? If we aren't Goliath in the story, standing in as God's enemy, the enemy of God, we are the people of God who are afraid, even though we have the plain promises of God before us. We read some of them from the Psalms today, Psalms of David, consequently, Psalms 28. They reminded us of the promises of God that he will always be with us. Genesis 3, we mentioned earlier in the sermon, what does it tell us? He will always be with us. He will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 17, what does he tell Abraham? You will always be my people. I will always be your God. The promises to Moses, to David. What does Jesus say? If you believe, you will be called children of God. What does the Creator do when it comes to his children? He stands and fights. Why do we fear? Because we believe the problems of sin and death are more than our Savior can handle, so we're afraid. Why do we fear people rather than God? Because we believe that man has power over us, so we let them. We make our decisions based on this fear. It comes out in all of our relationships. It comes out in everything that we do. We are terrified of man more so than we are of God, and we let man rule over us. Why do we hoard possessions? Why do we hoard prestige and the delight of men? Because we're afraid of what it looks like when we don't have those things because God isn't enough. Why do we gaze at tomorrow so much? Gaze at it and let it own our thoughts because we believe our God can only help us right now or not at all. And he's as much in doubt about tomorrow as we are. Why do we fear? Understand where fear comes from because we don't believe. Our faith is brittle and it is easily shattered. How does God respond about our fear and our unbelief? See this, brothers and sisters. He sends a deliverer. He didn't wait on us to be not afraid. Did David wait on the Israelites to be like, all right, guys, I'll go fight if you'll just stop running around scared all the time. He sends a deliverer because without a deliverer, 
we'd still be gathering up all these other saviors. So that takes us to the next and last point, David, the one who conquers. David comes in. He's bringing supplies to his brothers. I think David's really excited about the fact that his dad wants him to bring supplies to his brothers because he actually wants to fight. Uh, we see that with Eliab accusing him of that, and David really doesn't uh, deny it. He's just like, what? What did I do this time? You kind of get this brotherly uh, brotherly uh, kind of hatred going back and forth there. And uh, maybe Eliab's a little jealous of the fact that apparently David can grab a lion by the face and kill it. Um, so David spends time trying to rally the troops against Goliath. He shows himself to be a man ready for battle. This man of uncanny courage. Let's read a couple of these passages again. Look at verse 26 of chapter uh, 17. Oh, this is one of my favorite lines in this in this whole book. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look at verses uh, 34 through 37. I love this too. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, and delivered out of his mouth, delivered the sheep or the out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, if the lion somehow got these ideas like he was going to fight me, well, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Wow. What amazes me here is that David is obviously some sort of uh, super soldier, yet he is still caught standing on what? His own ability? No. He stands on the promises of God. They try to arm him. They try to like put him in a coat of mail and some big swords and stuff, but he, he wasn't having it. He chooses his weapon, a shepherd's weapon. Uh, it's great for the task. It's ranged, and he would have been greatly skilled at it. It's how he ate dinner every night, probably. He uh, would kill a bird or whatever and eat it. Well, he now gets to use this weapon against something else. Um, and so he goes out against Goliath. Goliath is hurling these insults at him. He's cursing him. Why is there, why do they bring a dog with sticks and, and all this different stuff going on? And then what does David say about that? Look at verses 45 through 47. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not by the sword or the spear. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. Pretty incredible. David might have been the only person there that believed what he just said. 
imagine the imagine this, right? Wouldn't you want to be there and see that? David standing up to this giant, no one at his back believing him. What do you mean you're going to go kill this guy? No one in front of him believing him. The king really just kind of like, well, go on then. See what you can do. And he did it. He ran forward. He killed his foe. He cut his head off, which we kind of read oddly past, but this would have been a process. Can you imagine that? Every single doubter there watching David do that. It scattered the enemy. The people of God did the rest, finally realizing that God was telling the truth, at least until the next day. I love this because, of course, it points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus have any doubters? Remember, his own followers weren't sure that he was even up for the task. They didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. They attacked the Roman guards when they came to arrest him. And then when they did arrest him, they scattered. Yet Jesus accomplished the task of redemption by defeating sin and death, nailing our sins to the cross, and walking out of the tomb on the third day. Does he still have doubters? Yes, unfortunately. That's you and I a lot of times. Those who deny him don't really count because they are his enemies. Those who are his, the ones that should definitely be on his side, are the ones that doubt him the most. The biggest problem with our doubt? What is the biggest problem with our doubt? We're not like David. We don't have to hit the mark. We don't have to hit the giant in the head. That's already happened. Jesus already did it. We already have a ticket to the promised land. We get to do that. We get to go in a little while. And we have the trust that while we are here, he's taking care of us. And then any other idol that we raise up for ourselves is garbage compared to what he has for us. And so in conclusion, what do we do? Well, first of all, when the world defies our God, we hold on to the truth. The world's denial of the truth shouldn't concern us because we have the truth. This guy that came up against this video that I posted, it didn't concern me. I wasn't somehow wooed by his reasoning, even as bad as it was, because I know where the truth is. And so how do we respond then? We share the truth with him. I use the opportunity to share the gospel with that guy. We share it with him, even if they don't want to hear it. We give it to them. This is what we have. What else do we do? We care for them. We love them. We minister to them. We take the time to answer their objections and attempt to be loving when we do that. We look upon them with compassion, just like Jesus did. He saw them as like sheep without a shepherd. And what about for our own fears then? Well, we do the same thing. We hold to the truth. We hold to the promises of God. That's why hearing the gospel Reading the gospel is so important to us. It is the promise of God for his people. Without it, we're hopeless. With it, we have the greatest hope on earth. There's nothing that can break us. There's nothing that can take us away from him. We are victorious 
not because we threw the stone at the giant, but because our sins are nailed to the cross, because death is defeated in Jesus Christ, and we claim the victory in him, the victorious one, who, like David, defeated his enemies and delivered his people. So let's go to him in prayer now. Our Lord Jesus, you're our deliverer, our king, our warrior, who fights for us even now. Even while we would walk away from the fight and be afraid of the smallest thing, you run into battle for your people. You did so once and for all on the cross, and then you even fight for us now as we are becoming more and more like you, telling us you will indeed finish what you have started in us. We thank you for your faith, even when we are faithless. Lord, help us be faithful. Help us believe. Help us be stronger in our faith in you. In your name we pray. Amen.